0: Well, our theme for this, our, our first guest service of the autumn is hope in a world of doom. And when we use that word hope today, it's, it's ironic how hopeless we often sound when we use the word hope. Uh, if, for example, you or I look out our kitchen window tomorrow morning, weighing up our plans for the day, and we say to each other, I hope it's not going to rain, what we're really saying is it probably is going to rain and there's nothing we can do about it. When we say I hope, I might say I hope that my team will win the Premier League this season and yet my favourite team is not Manchester City and so I may hope for it, but the reality is likely to be something different. We hope that food prices and fuel prices will come down but it's completely out of our, out of our hands and there's no sign of it yet. And so isn't it strange how... If we're left hoping for something, we're actually already at the point of sounding rather hopeless. And yet at the same time, human beings need hope. And this is not just me claiming that to you this evening to back up what I'm going to say later. uh, Scientific research would suggest that this is the case. Research would suggest that patients who receive extremely serious diagnoses, whether for cancer or for a similarly serious illness, they are much more likely to fight the illness, perhaps even to recover if they have someone or something to live for, if they have hope in their lives. Sometimes political figures tap into uh, this, this human need and desire for hope. Some of you might remember when Barack Obama burst onto the scene 15 years ago or more now and he campaigned to become president of the United States successfully using two very simple slogans, change and hope. And whatever you might think of his record since then, he he tapped into something that human beings sense that we need and want. We want to be hopeful. We want to have something that gives us purpose and joy in our lives. And yet we live in a world that offers very little hope. In fact, I would put it to you that in our time and place, people of all ages and backgrounds are feeling increasingly hopeless. Hopeless our headlines are not hopeful headlines. They are full of doom. If it's not a war in Ukraine, it's the cost of living. If it's not the cost of living, it's social problems arise in sexual crimes or, or violence, loneliness, online abuse of one kind or another. There's a creeping sense here in the UK, in a country where we once felt ourselves to be moving forward and growing our wealth and modernizing our infrastructure and Giving our children a better future that perhaps we've now stalled, if not even moving backwards. I wonder how hopeful a person are you. Do you tend to be optimistic? Or perhaps even though there are times when you feel optimistic, there's a part of you that isn't. And you wonder why that is. And you would long to have more hope. Well, I want to spend some time tonight thinking about what the Bible has to say about hope. And it's important to appreciate right at the beginning that when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not at all the way we use it. You know, I hope it won't rain when it actually probably is going to rain. Um, Hope in the Bible is not like that at all. The Bible tells us about a hope that is based on the certainty of past events and which will not fade in future. And that's really our key thought for this evening, that there is a hope that is based on, on the certainty of past events and which will not fade in future. And so we're going to spend most of our time thinking about those two things tonight. First of all, we're going to think about a hope secured in the past. A hope secured in the past. And we look again at the passage we read earlier, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, I was mentioning earlier the word apostle apostle means that Peter was part of a unique group of people who had spent time with Jesus. Most of them had spent time with him before his death on the cross. All of them had seen Jesus at least once, if not several times, after his death on the cross, after his resurrection from the dead. And the apostles were a unique category of people, a small group of people who were sent out by Jesus. That's what the word apostle means. It means someone sent out. And they were sent out to speak about Jesus, to preach about Jesus, to write about Jesus and with the authority of Jesus. It's a bit like today when uh, a head of state sends an ambassador to meet another head of state in the foreign head of state's country. And that ambassador has a lot of authority. They they can speak on behalf of their own country, but they speak only insofar as what uh, the head of state of their own nation has told them to say that's a bit like the apostles. And here's what Peter has to say <coughs> on behalf of Jesus. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So he, he, he names the places uh, where the people are to whom he is writing. And the good news is you don't need to worry about all those funny sounding place names. There's, there's one name that sums up all of those place names today and that is Turkey. So when you see that list of names in, 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 here in 1 Peter, it's just referring to what we know today as the land of Turkey. And Peter was writing to small little groups of Christians dispersed into churches all across what is now the land of Turkey. And notice here that he calls them elect exiles elect exiles. What does that mean? Well, an exile, of course, is someone unable to live in their homeland. Perhaps they've been forced out of it when some new political regime takes control. Perhaps there's a threat on their life in their home country, and so they have to stay elsewhere. But interestingly, Peter here calls Christians elect exiles. Some of the people to whom... Peter was writing may well have been Jewish people who had converted to Christianity. Uh, this was, uh, and this word exile was a word that Jewish people like Peter knew very well. Because for parts of their history the Jews have become exiles. The Old Testament describes how foreign enemies would on several occasions invade the promised land. The land of Israel. They would ransack cities and if they didn't kill you. They would exile you, they would take you off captive to their country and you would be be kept away, you would be prohibited from coming back to your homeland. Now Peter is writing hundreds of years after that, during the days of the Roman Empire but it's possible that some of the people that Peter was writing to have been forced to leave their homes because they were Christians. Sometimes in in the early days of the Christian church if not during Peter's lifetime, then certainly soon afterwards, Christians could end up exiled from their own community, from their own family. This still goes on in some parts of the world today. Christians would be disowned by their own family for becoming Christians, whether they were Jews or perhaps from a different religion. And so in a sense, Peter was writing to people who had experienced a form of exile, even if they hadn't been forced out of the country they lived in, they'd perhaps been forced out of their home. They'd been forced out of their job, out of their community. And even if most of those things didn't happen to you as a Christian in Peter's day, you were still living in a world that was not your real home. Most people in that time and in that place did not love and serve the God of the Bible. Instead, they worshipped the Roman Emperor. Or they worshipped Greek gods or Roman gods, or they worshipped the human body. Oftentimes acts of so called religious worship in, in in the cities of the Roman Empire they were nothing more than excuses for sexual sin, just rampant, wicked sexual immorality of all kinds. Not only that, but most people in the Roman Empire didn't think the way Christians thought. They didn't think in terms of heaven and hell and salvation from sin. They just believed that once you died, there was just kind of a dark void that your soul would wander around in for all eternity. In fact, one Greek writer from that time declared that, quote, it is best not to be born at all. And second best is to die at birth. That's a a mainstream Greek philosopher from the time of Peter. That's a pretty grim outlook on human life. And you see, friends, this is why Peter describes the people that he's writing to as exiles. That they're living in a world that is not their true home. A world that offers them no hope. And yet they are to be people and we are to be people who are not hopeless. Who are full of hope. Look what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? How has this living hope come about? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, to be a Christian is to be someone who has not just hope, but living hope. Not flimsy hope, not wishful thinking, not positive thoughts or positive energy that people might talk about today, but living hope. Why does he say it that way? Why, why does he say a living hope? Well, quite simply because Jesus Christ is a living saviour. Our hope is based upon who Jesus is and what he has done, that Jesus Christ is God who became a man Who lived perfectly without sin and offered up that perfect life as a substitute. (coughs) Paying the price for our imperfect lives with his life offered on the cross. But having done that, having died, Jesus has risen. He's defeated death today. He is alive, body and soul. And what makes Christianity different from every other religion and belief system and life perspective is that those who belong to Christ believe that we will be raised physically with Christ. And we will enjoy, at that moment, everlasting physical life. When we die, our souls will continue. Our souls will go to be with Christ. Uh, Our souls will live on. But when he returns, we will enjoy resurrection life. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and by that I mean his literal, physical resurrection from the dead, it's not an optional extra for Christians. It's not something that we can agree to disagree about. And there are, there are people who would call themselves Christians. There are churches who would call themselves Christian churches. Who don't believe this. Who would say well you know. We don't really know whether Jesus physically rose from the dead. It's maybe just sort of a, a mythical story. That has got lost in the mists of time. But, but if he's alive for you. If if he's alive in your heart, if you feel like Jesus is alive, that's great. That's all you need. No, that's not all you need. We can feel all kinds of things. We might want all kinds of things to be true and, and feel that they are. But we need this to be true. Either Jesus is alive physically and therefore we are people with living hope. For Jesus never rose from the dead at all. And if so, we should all go home right now and do something else. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, if there is no physical resurrection of Christ, Christianity is hopeless. But Paul continues a few verses later in verse twenty. Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we are people with living hope. You could say that as as long as Jesus is alive, our hope is alive. Jesus did rise from the dead. It is historical fact. Again, I, I just don't have time to go into many reasons I could give you for that this evening, but just to mention one or two briefly, and, and you can... Take the, the, the book that I recommended afterwards that might get into some of these things. But how do you explain people like Peter and the other apostles of Jesus who, before Jesus died, were so scared for their own lives that they ran away from Jesus when he was taken away to be arrested? And Peter even denied that he even knew Jesus to a young servant girl. How do you explain those same men then, uh, several only a few weeks later, preaching at Pentecost in Jerusalem? Preaching about salvation and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. How do you explain that? What changed in those men's lives? That they were no longer cowards hiding away in a room uh, for the days following Jesus' death. But now they're out in the streets and proclaiming it. What changed friends is that they saw the resurrected Jesus. How else do you explain the fact that there is no shrine? There is no grave no place where any guide can take you with any confidence at all today and say, that is the final resting place of Jesus of Nazareth. The most famous, well-known, influential figure in world history has no grave. You can go to Abraham's tomb today or you can go to King David's tomb. You can go to the tombs of the pharaohs. You can go to Muhammad's tomb. You can't go to Jesus' tomb. Because as the angel said on the first Lord's Day morning, he is not here. He is risen, as he said. Lots of people today base their hopes on events from the past. Patriotic people, no matter what flag they choose to wave in our part of the world, they say our nation was a great nation. It will always be a great nation. Or it can become a great nation again if it's not today. Today. People say, I've always supported my team. Great victories in the past. I'll continue supporting them and hoping that they achieve what I want them to achieve. Or people hope that life decisions they made years ago will prove to be the right ones. Or will prove to bring them contentment. I entered this career path. Hopefully it will bring success. I made this decision about a relationship with this person. Hopefully that relationship will bring fulfillment. But are those really living hopes? Sometimes those kinds of hopes die. Our loved ones with whom we have our closest relationships. They die. Job satisfaction perhaps escapes us. Someday we just lose the love and energy and interest in that job. Our nation, perhaps, starts to look less and less great than once it was, no matter, again, which flag you choose to fly. But Peter tells us about a different kind of hope, a living hope. One writer says, Peter describes it as a living hope because it is not based on futile things, things that can change as quickly as the weather or your relationship status, or your job title, or your health checkup can change things. The Christian's hope is based on the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and remains alive now and forevermore. Is that where your hope is based this evening? Do you have this living hope? Or are you hoping in someone or something that could so easily be taken away from you? So a hope based on the certainty of past events. Second thing I want to think about this evening is a hope that will not fade in future. A hope that will not fade in future. Look what Peter says in verse 4. To an inheritance, he says, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Often in the Bible, when uh, the writer is wanting to make a point really strongly to us, he'll use the same word several times over, or he'll use similar words two or three times together. That's what Peter does here. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. This hope cannot be lost. This hope will not change. This inheritance will never be lost. Again, the fact is, friends, that the things that we hope for in this life fade away. Some people, their greatest hope for the future is their money. They think, I'll be fine and my children will be fine as long as I have this amount of money or as long as I can save this amount of money. But what happens to it? It fades away. Even if you make every effort to keep it for your loved ones. Psalm 49 Verse 10 says, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. What he's saying is, wise or foolish, wealthy or not, you're going to die. And you can't take your wealth with you. And even if you leave it behind for those that you love to enjoy, it's going to fade away from them as well. There are different estimates on this, but one piece of research I checked suggests that that on average 70% of the wealth of extremely rich people is gone by the second generation of their family. So let's say you've worked hard, made millions or perhaps even billions. Or let's say you didn't work hard for it at all but somehow it got handed to you or you won the lottery or something and you came into money. And yet for most people soon after they're gone, the money's gone too in a generation or two. Some people put all their hope into a future experience. Maybe a young person decides to take a year out to travel or or a family saves up for the holiday of a lifetime. They just hope that that will be the thing that just changes their lives. And maybe it comes along and maybe it goes great and they enjoy it and they have plenty of great photos to take to plaster over social media to show everyone where they were and how much they enjoyed it. But then what happens? The trip is over. And it's back to normal life. And we have to deal with the ups and downs and stresses and responsibilities of it. Some people, their hope is in staying healthy. If I stick to this diet, keep up this exercise regime, I'm more likely to avoid certain illnesses or diseases. I'll live longer longer. Uh, Some people get very fascinated by those people that make the news that are like a hundred odd years old in certain parts of the world and think, what do those people eat? What do those people do every day? And again, diet and exercise are good things. God has given us bodies that we're to care for. And we should look after ourselves and preserve our life. But one way or another, friends, that life is going to come to an end. And perhaps those of you your order this evening would say that it goes past in the blink of an eye. James 4 verse 14 says, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Friends, whether it's the relationships we have with the most important people in our lives, whether it's our concern for health or wealth or good times or good looks, whether it's our most treasured possessions, they perish, they spoil, they fade away. And I don't say that to be cynical or morbid, but it's fact. It all perishes. What are we to do in the face of all of this? Said at the beginning, we're we're creatures who are designed to live with hope. We need hope. And yet everything we choose to hope in is going to fade away. And so do we just become cynical and jaded? Some of you have maybe seen the the popular movie, The Shawshank Redemption. In the film, a man named Andy, the man on the left here in the photo, played by Tim Robbins. Andy is wrongly put in prison for a crime he says he never committed. And he's befriended by another prisoner named Red, played by Morgan Freeman. Red's been in prison much longer than Andy. And one day, Andy and Red start talking about hope. And Red suddenly speaks very sternly and he says, let me tell you something, Andy. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. See, Red's been crushed by all the world's disappointments. He's paying the penalty for his own mistakes. And Red has given up on hope. Is that what we're supposed to do? No, Peter says we can have living hope. We can have it in Jesus Christ. And it includes hope for the future, for heaven. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfeeling. In a world of fading hopes, Peter says we can have living hope. The hope of heaven, the hope of resurrection. The hope that what has happened already for Jesus Christ will happen also to us who believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible calls this elsewhere first fruits. It says that the Jesus resurrection was the first fruits. The first fruits, farmers will tell you, is only the beginning of a far bigger harvest still to come. And so what happened to Jesus is only the beginning of what will happen for all those who trust in him as well. Resurrected life. That is the hope that is unfading for the future. Some of you have perhaps read the books of C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. He's written a few other books as well. Lewis was, Lewis was an atheist, but eventually he became a Christian. And here's what he said on this subject of hope. This is from his book, uh, Mere Christianity. He says, if I, find my, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse the longing for satisfaction. See what he's saying? The answer, if we, if we search the world as richer and more powerful people than us have done, if we search this world for hope and find none in this world, well then the answer must be that there is hope in a different world. That we're supposed to be putting our trust in. And so the answer is not to give up on hope like Red did. And say there's nothing to be hopeful about. The answer friends is to stop looking for hope in the wrong places. It's to place our hope in Christ. And to believe by faith in him that we have an inheritance. We have a future. We have resurrection waiting for us. Peter says that this wonderful inheritance is being guarded. He says uh, God's power is guarding it through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What he means there by a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, the word salvation, Christians today, we, we often use the word salvation to refer to Jesus' work on the cross, that we're, that we're trusting in that, that we are saved from our sins, that Jesus has finished the work for us to be saved from our sins. And all of that is right and true. But the word salvation simply means rescue. And the Bible makes clear that there is another rescue still to take place. That is that we we need to be rescued from the wrath of God that is going to come down on this whole earth when Jesus returns as judge. We know as Christians we will be saved from that wrath because Jesus has already experienced God's wrath in our place for our sin on the cross. And so when Jesus appears, we will be saved from the wrath that comes. Will you be saved from that wrath? Are you today standing, as it were, as though a, a 10-ton truck was coming toward you? And people, people have been yelling at you and people have been urging you, get out of the way. And you haven't moved yet. And you're still hoping that somehow the truck will miss you all together. The wrath of God is coming upon this world, friends. There is a salvation we know we will experience as believers. We know that through faith, God by his grace will enable us to persevere until we lay hold of our living hope and our future inheritance. Is that your hope this evening? Imperishable, undefiled and unfading. The hope of resurrection. That leads us on lastly and briefly just as we close to consider that this is a hope we need now. It's a hope that's been secured for us in the past by what Jesus has done. It's a, it's a hope that gives us a future that will not fade away. But we can't put off laying hold of this hope. We need this hope as it were in our hands now. How do we get this hope? How do I know that I have this Wonderful future waiting for me rather than death and punishment for my sin. Well, let's go back to to verse 3. Because Peter has already told us how we get this hope and I just haven't mentioned it until now. Verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. Notice that, friends. He has caused us to be born again. For you to have living hope, God needs to change your life. He needs to, by his spirit, birth new life in your soul. It's something that God does for you. You and I didn't play any part in our being born physically. We were in our mother's wombs, and then much to our own shock and surprise, suddenly we were born. We were born the first time without hope we need to be born again with living hope. And that's something that only God can do. Peter says here he does it according to his great mercy. The word there for mercy can also mean grace. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. A gift. Some people are fond of saying Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. There's no better. They're no better than anybody else. I know a Christian, Mr. So-and-so, and if you knew the things that I know about him, you wouldn't think much of Christians. Well, friends, we Christians would be the first to tell you, we know we're a bunch of hypocrites. We know that by ourselves we're as proud and selfish and foolish and deceptive as anybody else. The difference is only this. God has caused us to be born again. God has changed us. He has birthed new life in us. This is what Jesus once famously told a very religious man. A man who was outwardly very impressive. Would have been thought of as very respected and educated and successful. And Jesus said to that man, John 3 verse 3. Unless one is born again or born from above. He cannot see the kingdom of God. He can have no future inheritance. How do you know that you're born again? How do you know that God has given you this new life? Well again, how do we know that a newborn baby is healthy? They cry out. I've been there for the birth of my two children. Many of you have had the same experience. You want to hear them cry out. You're over the moon the first time you hear them cry out. Not so much the thousandth time you hear them cry out. But the first time you hear them cry out, you're delighted. Why? Because that's a sign of life. <coughs> they cry out because they want to be nourished and, have, and be held and provided for. And when a person is born again, the evidence is that they cry out to God. They want forgiveness of sin. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his promise of everlasting life. And his promise of sin forgiven. And so they cry out to him. So, yes, dear friend, you're right. Christians are no better than anybody else. We're Christians only because of God's great mercy. And for that, we praise God. One preacher has said it this way You're not put right with God because you're good. You will start to be good when you're put right with God. So, let's get the order correct. You're not put right with God because you're good. You will start to be good because you're put right with God. And so are these things your experience this evening? Are you born again? Have you cried out to God for the forgiveness of your sins? If you need to, do that tonight. And you will be someone who has living hope. At the end of the movie that I mentioned earlier, Andy replies to Red and says... Read, hope is a good thing, maybe even the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. And I would say, yes, if if your hope is in Jesus Christ, the one who died and who now is alive forevermore and who offers that same life to all who have their hope in him. Let's stand as we pray together.